The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel. And I'm Sarah Storm. And this is Hello Monday. We've called this series Navigating the New Office, but that's a metaphor because what is an office exactly? Jesse and I wanted to take the measure of work in 2022 to examine where it fits in our lives and what might be changing. And that meant examining how we are changing. What's really different about how we live our lives? If you're a frequent listener, you know that's really the question that drives our entire show. Which brings us to today's guest. Few people write with more nuance and grace about the interplay between how we live and how we work than Anne Helen Peterson. Anne got her start at BuzzFeed. And now she has a newsletter, Culture Study. You can find it on Substack. Last year, Anne and her husband, the writer Charlie Warzel, they co-wrote a book on work. It's called Out of Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home. Now, a thing I know about you, Jesse, is that you read Anne religiously, and you've shared that's because she studies culture. That's right. Yeah, so she, you've said she ties together things you're noticing, she grounds them in context and history. And so that makes this so exciting that we're closing out our series this summer by bringing her to the Hello Monday community. And of course, after you have a chat with Anne, you and I'll break it all down. That's right, Sarah. So with that, here's Anne. So I live on an island and no, I do not have an office. I do not even have like an office space in my home. Like I'm doing this podcast with you right now in the bedroom and I find different spots to work around the house. I kind of rotate around. Back when I did have an office, when I was a professor and then also when I, when I worked at BuzzFeed, I did enjoy that, that sort of separation. Like I am going to the physical space of the office to do work. I was very bad still during those times at, separating, oh, the, the office is a workspace and the home is a non-workspace. There was just an incredible slipperiness between those spaces. I worked all the time. For me, I approximate that feeling of like leaving the home and having that sort of transitional commute space by taking my dogs on a walk in the morning and then exercising in the evening. And that gives me some of that feeling. And then also taking breaks throughout the day that make it feel like I can come back to that space. But no, I don't feel like I need it. I, I collaborate a lot online and, and through text and that sort of thing. And also I work for myself, so I, I don't necessarily need that same sort of collaborative space. You do work for yourself, which a lot of, it's a situation a lot of our listeners find themselves in. You mentioned a couple of ways that you enforce discipline around when work happens and when work doesn't. Really? Does that really work for you? Or is that sort of aspirationally where you want to land? I think it's more aspirational. I, you know, I don't have this sort of discipline to keep my phone in the other room when I go to bed, right? Yeah. And I'm just not good at that. Like, I just, I like to look at my phone, not to start doing work. Like, I don't start firing off emails. It's more like I want to do my Wordle and... Right. And scroll Instagram a little bit. (laughs) Uh, I think I've always struggled, and some other people might identify with this, with a type of work that is very slippery. You know, I 
study pop culture. I write about pop culture. I also write about cultural trends. Like my newsletter is called Culture Study. It's all about the world that we live in. And I've never had that strict delineation between like, here is my work life and here is the rest of my life. People would say like, why can you turn off your your pop culture analysis brain when you watch a movie? And of course not, right? Like it's just, it's always all the time. And the thing that I had to decide was like, how can I make that so that it doesn't feel like a slog, right? How can I make it so that it feels like it's always enriching the way that I experience the world instead of something that I resent? And I think that I've gotten better at saying no to the sorts of things that would overload the amount of work that I just have generally. And this is a problem that I think so many freelancers and contractors have is like, more is more. Yes. Right? I always want to do more. I always feel like I have the capacity to do more. But when is more actually less, right? When is more work actually giving diminished returns? When are you a worse self, a less creative self, because you have said yes to too many things? I like to think in in the, in my moments of greatest optimism around how the initial quarantine aspect of the pandemic and the subsequent time after sort of shifted the way that we think about work and time. Angela Garbus makes such a beautiful um, argument for caretaking or simply investing in things like hobbies. I remember reading about your own pursuit of hobbies a mm-hmm. year and a half or so ago. It means more. We've decided to value it, at least alongside productivity. Do you think that that actually is a learning that might have come out of this this period? I do, but I think it's especially around the nebulous designation of millennials, right? I think that people around that age group or that that point in their careers reached a point during the pandemic that naturally coincided with this moment that's like, oh, is this all there is? <laughs> right? Like, oh, I, I'm I'm moderately secure at my job. I have enough money to put bills on auto pay, which is <clears throat> one way I think some people describe like what it means to be middle class um, is to be able to put your bills on auto pay. I have had some kids or I have a partner or I'm, I'm happy with the situation that I do have, whatever it is, but there's got to be something more, right? Yeah. Like I've checked those boxes. There's got to be something more. And that's a moment, you know, we, I think we used to call this like a midlife crisis. I think now we can maybe think of it as like a mid-career crisis of yep. what do I want? Do I want to be this person who values ambition and rising through the ranks above all else and really allowing work to cannibalize the rest of my life? And then wake up when I, when I'm 16 and be like, what was that all for? Or do I want to figure out a, a middle road forward now where I'm proud of the work that I do and proud of the person that I am as well? Like the, the person in my community, the person to my family, um, someone who right. like likes who they are and likes what they do, right? It's a really difficult place to arrive, but it takes some some real introspection and, you know, the pandemic provided a lot of space for that, that necessary introspection. But I will add as well that I think that (laughs) all generations, but especially millennials are conditioned to precarity. And what I mean by that is that we are always convinced that the other shoe is about to drop. And a lot of that has to do with our age and how it coincided with the great recession and that sort of thing. And so I think that there is this fear that even when you do have your bills on auto pay, 
even when you do feel secure, that everything could come tumbling down at any moment, right? That you will yes. not have enough for retirement ever, that you will work until you die, that a medical bill could bankrupt you at any moment, that everything could fall apart, right? And that is why in this particular moment, as I think a lot of people are gearing up for a recession that has not actually yet happened, right? Like it's like <laughs> everyone's just like bracing yes. themselves for it. And to be fair, you never really know a recession has happened until after the fact when somebody looks yes. back and says, oh, that bad, ugly thing, that was a recession. Right. Rarely is it as, as drastic as what happened with the Great Recession when it's like, oh, we're bailing out banks. Yes. Like, oh, all these people are defaulting on their mortgages. Right. But I think that that fear, the specter of that fear is really making people get back into that defensive crouch yes. of like, I need to take on more work. I need to make more savings. I need to I need to do this in a way that I think is a slight change from where we were even a year ago. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Anne Helen Peterson. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. None of the stuff that Anne mentioned is wild or out there. It's all possible. And that leaves us feeling sort of anxious and just a little uncomfortable most of the time. It can feel like the answer is to save even more or work even harder, if that's even possible. But Anne sees this differently. Yeah, and I think this is hard because in an American society, we really are taught that the way to protect yourself against disaster, catastrophe, at least right now in this moment, is to weave your own financial safety net. Right. And it's an incredibly individualized approach. And man, it is not the solution. Like, it is just not the way forward. But that is all that we really know to do. I think a lot of people would love to re-net the social safety net in a way that protects the most vulnerable and the least vulnerable, right? right? Protects us all. But there's a real frustration with the fact that like, <laughs> like votes don't seem to make that possible. Right. 
right? Like there's a feeling that, that the popular will to do that, to re-knit the social safety net is not getting through. So what do you do, right? This is like any other natural catastrophe. If the, the public service that is supposed to rescue you from that catastrophe is not coming, right? If the fireman is not coming, you get your own hose, problem is your hose is just what you bought at Home Depot and it's not big yes. enough to put out the fire that is burning down your house. Yes, yes totally. <laughs> I think about this so much because I spent the early part of my career covering the rise of the internet, which just seemed like such a great thing in 2005 and six and seven and led us to the point where we all were able to reach out individually to anyone and anything we wanted, but also eroded organizations that I grew up depending on for basic local community service. And so I am kind of obsessed personally right now with, well, how, how do we knit together new 21st century organizations that provide that type of mutual aid, like willingly? How do, yeah. how do we willingly opt into needing each other? Can we do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it takes vulnerability, right? You know, this past week, I've been using the newsletter, both like the threads and then also using my Instagram account, which I, I ask questions and then people respond back to to explore this question of like, how have you shown up for your friends who are parents, right? And and how have you become an important person in a kid's life who is not your own? And then also, how have you shown up for your friends who aren't parents, right? Single friends, people who aren't part of these um, more traditional structures of, of community and care. Like, how have you provided that service as well? And people are just so stymied. Yep. They don't know how to ask for help and they don't know how to receive it. And I think so much of that is we have allowed these pretty straightforward and robust infrastructures of care to atrophy. There's so many reasons for this. Like there's so many reasons why people aren't part of the Elks Club and the Eagles Club and the Sons of Norway and the Gardening Club and all those sorts of things at the numbers that they were during if you lived in the United States, your grandparents' generation or yes. your great-grandparents' generation, like that has really atrophied. And, and as people have ceased to go to church in the same number, ceased to be part of these organizations, you know, those things offered these very natural ways of like, oh, this is how we take care of each other. This is how we know someone who's older in our community is sick and needs help. Right. This is how we broadcast our need. And now we need scripts for it. Right. Like we need to have these ways to be like, here's how I say I need help. Here's how I'm saying I'm vulnerable. Here's here's how I say I can offer help. I want to offer help because that's the thing is I think a lot of people want to do this and a lot of people need this in their lives. And that reciprocity is just not is not there. Is there a 21st century version of that that is materializing that you can see threads of somewhere? Hmm. I do think that mutual aid networks, a lot of them existed before the pandemic, but became really robust during the pandemic. These places that were like, have a need, give a need, right? Or there are problems with Facebook's buy any or buy nothing groups, but there are also, you know, they are incredible resources of like voicing need and people offering care and need as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think right now we're still figuring out how to even offer it amongst friends. And I will say that this is a very bourgeois problem, right? I think that working class people know how to depend on one another, right? They, they don't have any other choice. 
right? It's like, here's the neighbor that watches our kids and maybe it's not the highest rated preschool, but you know what? This lady does the work and she charges what I can afford and it works. And I think that this fixation on perfection, perfection in parenting, perfection in work, perfection in um, the way that you like demonstrate your life on social media, all of these different things, perfection and cleanliness of the home really keeps us from being there for one another. And like, I will say that I heard from so many people who said like, I don't want my friend to come over and help during the witching hour, right? Like the, the hours between five and seven at their home when they're trying to like feed dinner, you know, put to bed, all those sorts of things. I'm embarrassed to have my best friend come over because the house is so messy. Yep. And that shame, I understand where it comes from. Parents shame each other so much, particularly bourgeois parents. But at the same time, if you can't allow yourself to be vulnerable to your best friends, that highlights a lack of of intimacy that makes me really sad, right? Like that this need to to um, broadcast perfection at all moments instead yeah. of get the help that you need. Yeah. You know, I think that's what the quarantine brought in many ways for many people who hadn't experienced it. All of those things that we once paid for as services, if we were of a class where we had access to capital to do that, um, we, we couldn't anymore. And so we, we had to find each other. And, you know, it was terrible. And it was the greatest gift. Like, <laughs> yes. Right? And, yes. and during that period, I felt so frustrated with the world, but also um, the least lonely I've ever felt as an adult mm-hmm. and the least saddled with the... Um, aspects of keeping my home together than I'd ever felt because I just gave it up like it just there was it was yes. it, right um, but here's the bummer about that right we're in summer of 2022 and we're, we're somehow mm-hmm. back into the swing of things absent the constraints that yep. the quarantine gave us we we've yep. gone backward in in many of the ways that I hoped that we wouldn't yeah I think that this is this impulse and I understood it at first, like when people first started getting vaccinated, it's like, do all the things. Yeah. And I think we're still like getting through that backload of like leisure energy that people had. Um, it's ending now. But at the same time, instead of remembering, I think so many people, myself included, really reveled in that slowed down pace of the pandemic. Like, yes, it was horrible and very lonely and um, difficult in so many ways, but it made me think, why was I traveling all the time for work? Why did I need to get on a plane to do that interview? You know, there are so many reasons that I, that kind of the inertia of busyness keeps you going and doesn't allow you to sit and think about like, what do I actually value? What is it about having open spaces that allows for spontaneity of care, right? Of being there with one another in a way that a lot of us, I think are very, very nostalgic about. You know, like the unplanned summer that was just like, okay, we have a couple of things on our calendar and mostly our kids just run around. Like my summers as a kid were so boring, exquisitely boring, Yes, right? Just large swaths of time being incredibly bored. And it, it made me the person that I am. And I don't know if we're affording ourselves or our children that privilege. Well, I would also say that it, it, even if you've identified that it's something that you really want, as you go back into the world, even if you've set it as your own goal, now it means electing to be left out of things yeah. in a way that it didn't two years ago. 
And I think that actually is a situation for a lot of people right now. I, I think it's an interesting balance, right? I think there is a difference to me between things that I actually like to do and things that I feel like I should yeah. do. Right? That that feeling of obligation or compulsion. And that's been um, helpful in clarifying some things, especially like if I let an invitation sit in my inbox for a couple of days. It allows me to think about like, do you actually want to do that? Or do you just want to say yes, because it allows you to think about something that you don't want to think about yeah. right now. Right. Yeah. Um, so that has been, that has been useful, but otherwise, you know, I was talking with someone the other day about their company and they really value presence. They had a really robust travel culture before the pandemic and it stopped. And this person can't travel that much because she has two young kids and her her partner also has to travel some for his work. So they just have to figure out a balance. But she sometimes feels like she's not getting the advancement opportunities because she is not part of this culture that values presence as much or is not evidencing it as much. And I think that like what that's a recipe for <laughs> is advancing a certain type of employee, right? Like you right. really are creating this monoculture of like, only people who can really jettison these other responsibilities in their lives. And I don't know if that's healthy. Um, that brings us to this this larger question, how does the hybrid culture, hybrid workforce work, right? And you bring up a really great point when you write about this, which is that we shouldn't expect companies to simply know how this works, that it takes a huge investment of time and the resources that go into, into that um, to, to begin to unpack it and understand it. A lot of folks are just kind of bungling it right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's similar to working from home. If you've never worked from home before, it's a discrete skill. It's not the same as working in an office. Understanding how, how to feed yourself, how to take breaks, how to maintain your calendar, all of those things in a way that... Um, makes working from home more healthy, more sustainable. It's it's a skill that takes time to to develop. And also this is a good time to remind ourselves that like the first two years of the pandemic were not working from home. Anyone who worked from home before the pandemic will tell you that. Like there is a difference. But I think extending that understanding of like this is a discrete skill to thinking about how organizations have to develop new ways of thinking about hiring, new ways of thinking about onboarding, about mentorship, about all of these different components of management. When they move to hybrid, some companies are terrified of the task and are avoiding it that way, or they feel like they're under-resourced and overdrawn and are just kind of doing what they always do, which is like sending out like links to webinars <laughs> or they're meeting the challenge head on, right? Like that's the third option is they're like, this is a massive task and we need to continue to take it incredibly seriously because we understand that this is the future of our organization and the future of work just generally. This summer, the question of a recession has been central. It's clear the economy is tightening. Layoffs are a reality for so many of Hello Monday's listeners. So I asked Dan how companies should really see the office in all of this. Stop like paying the lease on this office that no one uses. That's how you can actually really change the the budget line items. But uh, oftentimes leaders themselves are the ones who love the office the most. So I think that that's a difficult change to make. Um, 
Yeah, I just think right now, if you are approaching the future of work and trying to grapple with hybrid scenarios from this posture of fear and posture of anxiety instead of this posture of possibility and posture of iteration, then you're not going to actually grapple with the larger problems that are hindering the development of, of, you know, good company culture, good hybrid culture, those sorts of things. That was Anne Helen Peterson. Check out her Substack newsletter. It's called Culture Study. Now I'm going to bring Sarah back. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Jesse. How are you? That was so fun. I have to tell you, I think Anne Helen Peterson is the journalist I read most frequently. I certainly pay for her stuff. I felt even a little nervous to have her on the show because I was anxious about talking to her after reading her for so long. You've sent her stuff to me. It's very interesting for to know you as a journalist, to know the journalism that like you consume. So it was also a big deal to like have her in the studio <laughs> virtually. Um, I thought she brought so much to our conversation that felt worthy of, I don't know, bookending our summer series. And you put it beautifully when we were preparing for this episode, Sarah. You were saying that you thought that this episode had a lot in common with our first episode, which was with Carol Robin. Um, in that they both really focused on interpersonal relationships, right? A hundred percent. I think that both Carol and Anne are addressing the problem of empathy in very different ways that complement each other really beautifully. Carol's all about how we get the work of work done, and Anne feels like she's more interested in like how we get the work of life done. And both of them are addressing where a failure to connect to our colleagues, to our communities are really doing us this disservice. So I loved seeing the two sides come together. But that really is sort of where we have landed in 2022. You know, when we set out to think about, okay, well, where are we right now with work? We wanted to look at what the pandemic had done to our work lives. And at first, we had the just the period of extended absence, right, where we were home during quarantine. And then last year, we had the period of return where we're figuring things out. And if I had to characterize this period of work that we're in right now, it's a period of alienation where we've learned that all of the tools that we tried to substitute for in-person, face-to-face communication have been subpar. They've only half worked. And we're all paying the price for the different ways that not being together in community And by the way, I mean the subtle price. None of this is obvious, but all of the ways that not being together in community has has shifted things for us. Um, And trying to take measure of those subtle ways that it has shifted for us, it's, it's not easy. It's hard. That inability to connect in person and online or the difficulties we've had really do, I think, contribute to that latent anxiety, that sort of hum of anxiety that you described in the in the conversation with Anne. Um, A lot of us don't know how to ask for help or don't know how to be together any longer. And so it makes every interaction like a little bit more difficult. Against the backdrop of a world that it turns out is not static. We're never piloting back toward a static state. Instead, we are like driving into uh, a series of unknowns, climate change, uh, political unrest, future pandemics. We know it's all up ahead. We can't predict what it is. Ambient anxiety is sort of the word that I use for that. Ambient anxiety, that's the one. And here we are. And I think in the midst of that, Anne actually does offer us a lot of helpful ways to frame this experience that we're having. And it's her approach is most helpful when it's seen through the lens of how do we connect better with each other in community. 
Yeah. How do we show up for each other? It comes back to Carol Robin and Anne Helen Peterson both saying connection is the key to everything. So let's talk about how we show up for each other. Let's talk about it this Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern, as we always do at Office Hours. Sarah, what's Office Hours? Explain it. Office Hours is our is our virtual water cooler that we created during the pandemic. It's our chance as a community to gather, show up, support each other, and chat a little bit about the episode and the issues of the day. That's right. And a lot of you come, and we're so grateful to see returning people week after week, but there is always room for more. If you're planning on joining us for Office Hours, you can find us on the LinkedIn news page, 3 p.m. Eastern each Wednesday. And if you can't find that, email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send it to you. Thank you so much for that, Sarah. Will you take us home? Absolutely. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. I produce the show with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor help us build more empathy, always. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And special thanks to Sarah for co-hosting this series with me. It's been real, Sarah. It really has. It's been super fun. Thanks for having me. So I'm Jesse Hempel, and I will be back next Monday with a new episode. Thanks for listening. I think that I might be like your single best sales team and we have never even met (laughs) because I've gotten so many of the important women and a couple of the important men in my life to sign up for your newsletter, usually because some letter just absolutely speaks to either something happening for me in my in my life, in my career, or some something happening for my friend. Oh well thank you so much. (laughs) That that's just wonderful. And that also means that I think we're gonna have a great conversation. So I'm excited for that.